Welcome to the Debit This, Credit That podcast with Wheeler Accountants, located in San Jose, California. In this podcast, we discuss how to solve accounting challenges in both your personal life and your business. We take an energetic, tech-savvy approach to solving accounting challenges that steal your focus and your time. Now, on to the show with your tech-savvy accounting experts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Welcome to episode 33 of the Debit This, Credit That podcast by Wheeler Accountants with your hosts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Today, we're going to do an episode on stock options, stock options and equity compensation. One of my areas of specialty, Michael knows a little less, except maybe from the financial statement perspective for the <laughs> for the clients. Yeah, just how to value them. I, I could go into lots of detail on valuing, but not on the stock tax treatment. So hopefully this will be educational for you. Absolutely. And then some of our listeners as well. This is a very common thing we deal with with a lot of our clients here in Silicon Valley. Obviously, this is Silicon Valley. It's the land of tech and stock options are very popular or some form of equity compensation. It doesn't necessarily apply to just technology companies. Uh, There's a lot of companies, various types, where as they grow in size, doing some sort of compensation through equity in addition to cash compensation it's how you get to a total compensation package for someone that's going to work for you. There's obviously potential for large upside on the equity side, whereas cash, you get cash, you pay tax, and then you go ahead and invest your cash or do what you please with it, go buy a boat, you know, whatever you're going to do. But equity compensation is where you can get a lot of the upside. And there's also preferential tax treatment on equity compensation a lot of times. And so that's one of the main drivers, obviously, behind why companies do this and why employees like this is to get that preferential tax treatment. And it, it also gives the employee some skin in the game, right? I mean, that's why the, the owners of the company is offering these these equity. Yeah, very good point. There's, there's skin in the game for the employee, which is good. They're an owner. You know, you hear the phrase like, you know, you think like an employee versus think like an owner. Right. And we see that very commonly. California is a very like employee-friendly state. And so if you can shift the mindset of some of your top employees from thinking in terms of us versus the company on compensation, benefits, and other types of issues to we are a part of the company, that can be a very big mindset shift and can lead to a more successful business. Absolutely. I mean, the general theory behind options and equity compensation is exactly that. It's, it's compensation right of some form you can compensate in cash you can compensate with benefits you can compensate with equity and like i said the equity compensation has some unique tax aspects that really allows a tax benefit on the employee side if you think about a company that you have and it's going to grow from being worth nothing to let's say a hundred million dollars over time and you're the owner and you have a few key employees and you want to reward them there's a hundred million of value that you've built up into this business. And when you're trying to determine how you're going to get that value back out to yourself and the key employees, there's different ways you can do it. You can do it via just compensation for a lot of it, more or less, but you're paying tax at the highest marginal tax bracket on some kind of gain like that. You're going to get eaten alive by taxes, especially if you're in a high tax, high income tax state like California or something, you're talking over 50% tax hit on something like that versus if you can get some of that hundred million dollars in value and compensate in via the form of long-term gains now you've brought your effective tax rate down to maybe like 35 36 percent 
and with some of the special exclusions that are available to certain types of businesses, you can actually go even less than that and get an even bigger tax break. So that makes a big difference. Also on the equity compensation side, on when you sell stock, that's something that the residency planning comes into play. If you wait to sell your stock and it's an intangible long-term gain, when you live in like a non-tax state or a lower tax state, you could actually maybe avoid or eliminate or at least reduce the state income tax bite on that. So there's a lot of opportunity with equity compensation. And that's one of the things that I specialize in here at the firm and a lot of our other accountants do. And we won't talk about more in this podcast. Sounds like it's going to require a lot of planning then. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Can you give us an example or tell us the kind of the main types of stock options that are available? Yeah, there's generally four main types of equity compensation. There are stock options, and those are split into two categories. There's incentive stock options and non-qualified stock options. Incentive stock options are basically uh, specific types of options that are afforded special treatment under the tax code, and they're considered qualified stock options. And then everything else is considered a non-qualified stock option. An option is just a right to purchase the stock in the future at a fixed price. There's also restricted stock, commonly called RSUs. Google mm-hmm. calls them GSUs because they're special, but it's the same concept. <laughs> yes. it's, it's when you're basically granted the stock. Usually the restricted portion means there's some sort of restriction on the stock. Like you don't, you don't take title or own the stock right away. You have to wait until it vests. Usually there's a timing window for the vesting over like a four-year four period is, is very common for the RSUs. So you're given the stock in the company. There's compensation for being given the stock, but there's some sort of restriction on it. There's also ESPPs, which is the fourth category. That's employee stock purchase plan. That's also a special type of equity compensation arrangement, not technically an option. Neither is RSUs, but it's that's where you're part of a program where you're permitted to buy stock in the company at a discount to the current value. And there's some special tax treatment for that one, too. But those are the four main types of of equity compensation. Is one more popular than the other in Silicon Valley right now? Yeah, right now, I would say RSUs and ESPPs are by far the most popular, especially for the larger, more mature companies. ESPP is pretty easy to implement in the company. And since the employee's buying the stock at only a small discount, the company's not really giving up much by offering that sort of plan. RSUs, the company's deciding to grant shares to their employees in exchange for service rather than cash. So it's also a very common tool used by the big companies and the companies get a current deduction for the RSUs that are issued to the employees because they recognize income when they receive them. So again, that's, you know, a thing a lot of the companies do now. And then ISOs and NQSOs, the options, the qualified and non-qualified ones, those are more common if it's a startup and you're a very early stage employee or it was much more common back like in the first dot-com boom where right. people got totally burned, by, especially by the ISOs. We'll explain the tax treatment and why. And so that's why you don't see as much of the options anymore. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Why don't we dive into the treatment of ISOs? ISOs, usually the advantage there is that when you exercise and purchase the ISO and you hold it more than a year, so you have a qualifying disposition, then all of your gain when you sell is going to be a long-term capital gain. The strike price or the price you're allowed to exercise and purchase the share at is usually pretty low. It's based on the valuation of the company at the time when you're granted the options typically. And so 
That's why, again, it only really applies to very early stage employees or yeah, early employees at very early stage companies because the valuation still is very low. They're betting on it really going up. Betting on it really going up. And that's where you can have the most upside and you can convert a lot of the upside to long term gain instead of ordinary income. But there's two different types of tax treatment for the ISOs. I talked about the long term where you exercise, hold a year and you get long term gain. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a qualifying disposition. But if you, if you have a disqualifying disposition, which is when you buy and sell within a year, it could be the same year, it could be straddle two years. Basically, the entire gain, the difference between the market value on when you sell it or buy it mm-hmm. and the strike price is going to be ordinary income. So now you have less of an advantage oh. tax wise by doing a short term disposition. As the value of the company goes up over time and that spread increases, if you then do a same day sale and cash out, you're going to have a bigger ordinary income amount. So it usually pays to exercise and buy them early on so you don't so you can start the, the clock on the long term gains and you can take advantage of the long term gains. So it sounds like, again, this is where planning comes into play and people should be speaking to you before they make any actions on these. Absolutely. There's a lot of planning involved in ISOs. You don't want to just do things on the fly. One of the reasons that a lot of people got burned with the ISOs in the first dot com was because of what happens when you exercise and purchase the options. Nothing happens for regular tax purposes. You just start the long term capital gain holding clock when you exercise. You you pay for the shares. Usually it's pennies per share or something. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't cost you a lot up front. But that spread we were talking about, the difference between the current value and the price you pay for them. That becomes income for alternative minimum tax purposes or AMT. Everyone hears about AMT. You know, it's a very high profile tax topic. So if you buy and hold the ISOs, you have AMT income, even they don't have regular tax income. And so a lot of people in the dot com, when the valuations were really high and there was a big spread, they were buying and holding and they had to pay a lot of tax out of pocket up front, even though they haven't sold the stock. So you got to come up with cash to buy them and and you come up with cash to pay the tax up front. And then what happens is you generate an AMT credit, which you can use in the future that help offset your tax when in a year you're not an AMT. And the common wisdom at the time was the stocks are all going up and they're always going to go up. So, you know, (laughs) you you buy and hold because you're going to get the long term gain. Well, some unfortunate folks bought at the peak. Everything tanked. And now they were stuck in a situation where they, when they finally sold the stock, it had gone way down in value. The amount of money they got was way less. It may have even been less than the tax that they paid. And now they're just completely underwater on this transaction. They got screwed and they have this big AMT credit carry forward, which they can only use in a year. They're not an AMT. And if they continued to work and make, you know, a couple hundred thousand a year or whatever in their W-2 job and have their usual deductions and they were in AMT every year for many years, they could, they didn't get that. AMT credit back. So it just sat there and carried forward every year. And so people had a lot of pain from this. People had to like sell their houses, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, some people may not like bandits in the first.com made a ton of money. And that's definitely true. Some people got hosed and lost a lot in the, in the first.com. So that's why people are much more cautious about ISOs now in the Valley. Anybody that has a longer history or time frame recalls that period. And then we always remember the painful parts. <laughs> yeah. And so they're, they're much less popular. So some clients that have even now, if they have ISOs that are granted, they wait and they just do the same day cash out and pay the ordinary income tax. They don't care. They'd rather just pay the tax if we don't with it. But it's a sure deal, with the kind of cash they're getting when they sell. And then they don't need to worry about it. Oh, OK, that makes sense. Now, under tax reform, has the AMT rules been corrected to- they to have, address that? Yeah, it's great. They haven't been corrected, but they've been changed significantly. So 
what happens now is everyone gets an AMT exemption based on your filing status and your income level. That exemption used to phase out at a pretty low level for single or married filing joint folks. Now the phase out for that exemption doesn't start until you're over a million dollars of income. So there's actually opportunity now under the new tax law if you do have ISOs and you haven't bought them, you may be able to buy some and not pay any AMT tax out of pocket up front. So you're really only just paying an exercise price, which is usually pretty small. And so we'll do analysis so we'll determine how many shares can you buy without triggering additional AMT you got to pay out of pocket and have you do that every year to kind of start acquiring those shares. I'm hearing the uh, the theme going on that planning is really key around any of these options. Planning is absolutely key for any kind of equity compensation. You want to be making sure you're making smart tax decisions and financial decisions, but smart tax decisions on how you go about acquiring your equity compensation if it's not a grantee or like RSUs and then how you sell it and diversify out of the holdings. So we work a lot with financial advisors of the clients to determine how to best exit, you know, these concentrated positions they usually have in a tax efficient manner. Sometimes there's nothing you can do, but a lot of times we can do a lot of planning, especially if you have some sort of options like the ISOs available. Now is tax treatment different for the non-qualified? Definitely different. The non-quals are treated as like a disqualifying disposition on the ISO is more or less. So once you buy them, you have to pay tax on that spread between the market value and the strike price, all ordinary income. So there's not really any incentive to buy and hold a non-qual. If you buy and hold it, you pay all the tax up front on the spread. You can keep holding it. And then if the price goes up beyond that, then you have capital gain above and beyond that. And it'll be short or long term, depending on how long you hold it. But that out-of-pocket price up front is so significant that most people don't do it because you have to pay all the taxes up front on the sale. And there's actually withholding required on those, including payroll taxes. The ISOs don't have withholding for payroll tax or for income tax. The non-quals do for both. And so you end up paying the payroll tax on non-quals, you end up paying the income tax on non-quals, and then you're not really an advantage to, to saving them. So most clients will just cash those out and do a same-day sale or cashless exercise right away. That's usually the way to go. You mentioned the the withholdings. I've I've heard some stories floating around the office of, of missed withholdings for some of uh, our recognized names in the Valley. Can you give us some examples of how that actually requires some planning as well? It does. You re, you know, you're required to pay a certain amount of tax in during the year to avoid being penalized for underpayments. The underpayment penalty right now is 5%. It's basically interest you're paying on a tax you should have paid to the government at an earlier date. So you're borrowing from the government if you don't pay your ta- pay enough tax in to avoid the penalty. And uh, there's the IRS and California have statutory withholding rates on supplemental payments, which includes like bonuses and then also like lots of types of equity compensation. And so it used to be 25% federal and now it's like 22% federal. So it's gone down a couple percent due to the tax reform mm-hmm. change and the tax tables going down. But if you're a high earner and you're in the 37% tax bracket, you're short on your tax obligation. I mean, you were before when the top rate was 39.6% and the withholding was 25, you were already 14.6% short. Now you're going to be 15% short. So hopefully so, they didn't spend it off. So that, yeah, the same, the same problem arises and they don't, the withholding rate changes once you go over a million in income. All of a sudden, they switch it to the top rate, and now you don't have a problem anymore. But if you're in that million or below range, you could be severely underwithheld at that point. And not only do you have a nasty surprise when you file your taxes in April, if you didn't do any planning, you also may be penalized. So 
that's why the planning is very important. And we try and get recent pay stubs from the clients after a major exercise or bonus or, you know, during tax season, we're trying to plan out the next year's estimated payments to make sure they're in compliance and not going to get hit with a big penalty. So, so we've talked about tax treatment on the ISOs and, and the non-qualified. What about RSUs? Is, how is the tax treatment different for RSUs? A lot of my clients get confused on the RSUs a lot of times and don't understand how it works, but it actually is quite simple. If you, if you think about it in this way, it's the same exact treatment as if you got a cash bonus from your company. They took out taxes, so you have a net amount of cash, and then you went out and bought your company stock on the open market you'll end up in the exact same place as when you're granted RSUs. Okay, I can picture that. That's that's a pretty clear picture. Because what happens with RSUs is you're granted a fixed number of shares. It's called 100 shares. You know, at $10 a share, the value when they vest, that's when you get the 100 shares. Mm-hmm. And so that's $1,000 of compensation income to you. That's what's going to go on your W-2, $1,000 yeah. of income. And then the company's required to remit withholding and payroll taxes on the $1,000 of compensation income. So the way they do that is they keep a certain number of the 100 shares and they basically sell those off at the $10 a share to generate enough cash to pay the tax for you. And then you get the net number of shares and then they'll give you some sort of like, you know, rounding adjustment cash payment for like the, whatever the rounding difference is between how much the share they sold and, you know, what the taxes were. So you basically end up in the same place, like I said, where you just bought an, a fixed number of shares from the company after you had the taxes taken out and everything else. So at that point, forward, if you sell the day after they vest, you don't really have any additional tax consequence at that point. You've already had a tax consequence. You've already had the thousand dollars of income. Your basis in those shares is now $10 a share. That's the price at which they vested. And if you sold the next day for $10 a share, you you just have a capital gain or loss, a short-term one, based on the value that it vested at and what you sold it at minus the commissions and everything. So the second portion of the transaction, where you're actually having a stock sale and cashing out the rest, you just have a like some sort of minor capital loss probably or some capital gain depending on the market's fluctuation for the day or whatever. But all the tax impact already happened when invested, which you may be underwithheld at that point. So people get confused and think they already pay the taxes. It's, no, no. You had withholding on the income, but it's at the statutory rate, the 22% or the 25% on the old loss. So you could have been short on the initial vest. So you, you paid some tax, but you didn't necessarily pay all your tax obligation. And that's where clients get in trouble. They think they just paid the tax already. Just like when they get a bonus or something. And in taxes, when you're getting paid salary, bonuses, anything else, all that is is just you're just paying an estimate of what you're going to owe and everything gets chewed up on your return at the end of the year. And you pay more if you still owe or you get a refund if you paid too much. And so you haven't already paid the tax on the, the RSUs per se. You've just paid some of the tax, maybe all of it that you owe, maybe more than you owe, probably less than you owe if you're a high income earner. And so you need to plan for that. But then once you turn around and sell it, the selling part doesn't do anything else. That's just sold immediately. Now, if you hold more than a year after they vested, now it's long-term gain or loss, depending on whether it's gone up or down from the price you got the shares at. So if it went up, the difference, the delta, if the stock went to $20 a share and you got it at 10, now you have $10 of capital gain, long or short term, depending on how long you held it. And you pay additional tax on the extra $10, but you already paid tax on the first $10, or at least you had it as income in your W-2. And actually, that brings up another point is where a lot of the reporting from the brokerage is when you sell the shares, they show a zero cost basis on the statement. <laughs> but it, clearly they had a cost. Yeah. And so you need to then fill that part in on the capital gain or loss transaction on your return on Schedule D. If you don't, you're double paying the tax. You're paying 
the full sales price of the shares when you sold them, plus you already had your W-2. And we encounter a new client, you know, probably one in every five clients or one in every six new clients that comes in that has these options. We look at the prior returns. Sure enough, they overpaid on their taxes, whether it's the ESPPs or the RSUs or something like that. And we can go ahead and file an amendment, get money back immediately. But you only have three years to go back. So you got to be got to be on it. So I'm hearing that planning is still important with RSUs and also having a good preparer that is looking out for you and knows how to treat these RSUs in their tax returns to make sure that that you are remitting the proper amount of tax. That's right. You want someone that specializes in stock options like we do at our firm and you want an accountant, obviously, that's proactive about planning, which we also are. We reach out to our clients on a quarterly basis and check in and see what's going on with their tax situation. 95% of the time, the clients just say, thanks for checking in. Nothing's going on. But every 5% of the time, every once in a while, you know, a client sold some stock or got a big bonus or got hey, a big my company stock sold. <laughs> or their company sold or they sold a piece of property. And so that's when we do the planning at that point to stay ahead of the game because we're limited in our options after the close of the tax year. We can only do so much retroactively. We have a few tools in our tool chest, but not very much. Nothing like what we have when it's during the same tax year. Then we can do so much more. So planning is planning is huge. Yeah. So this is one of those life events that we talk about where planning is required. Right. Right. I think the only other one that we wanted to cover today was tax treatment on ESPPs. Yeah, ESPPs, the Employee Stock Purchase Plan, you're usually buying the stock at a discount from the price it's granted to you at. How so much is normally the discount? It's 15%. So okay. usually if the stock's worth $100 at the grant and they say you can buy you know X number of shares every six months or whatever, then you can buy them at $85 a share. So you have an immediate gain. If you have an ESPP plan at work, you should participate in it <laughs> because you get the stock at a discount. Right. You, know, you can buy it at a discount. So you're, you're buying a dollar for 85 cents and then you can turn around and sell it immediately and you pay tax on whatever the difference is. Or if you hold it for more than a year, then you have the, the gain is bifurcated between ordinary income and capital gain, depending on the, you know, whether it's a qualifying or disqualifying disposition and you know, how long you hold on to it and how much the gain is overall, or it could be a loss. You could lose money on them. But, you know, for most clients, it's, it's usually a good move to the ESPP. So for ESPPs, you want to usually buy and hold long term, get the qualified treatment, because then what happens if you have a pretty good size gain on it, only the original 15% discount is ordinary income. All the rest is long term capital gain. So that's one of the best best case scenarios for you for the ESPPs. You're going to pay some ordinary income, but most is going to be long term gain. Okay, and there's usually some type of limit, I'm guessing, of how much an employee can buy. Yeah, there's limits. I, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what they are, but they're spelled out in the code and everything. Your your company will let you know how much you could put into the ESPP plan, you know, every, usually if you can buy every like six months or something and you take money into your paycheck and it goes into this account where you buy the ESPPs. But yeah, they'll let you know the limits on that kind of stuff. Oh, that sounds like a good opportunity. You know, I've heard you talk a lot about qualified small business stock. And um, I know that you have some some good examples of where it can be very effective. So maybe can you just give us an idea of what is meant by qualified small business stock? Yeah. I'll ask you a question. Do you like paying tax? Oh, I love paying tax. As you know, as my tax accountant, <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> like paying tax. No one likes paying tax. I've never <laughs> had any clients that like paying tax. Red, blue, doesn't matter what political party you are, doesn't matter. No one likes paying tax. Qualified small business stock 
is a special type of stock available to certain types of eligible businesses and people that own that stock, if they meet the requirements of it, they can actually get, if they've acquired their stock from some point in like late 2010 onwards, you can pay 0% federal tax rate. Wait, wait, what? Zero pay no percent? tax. No so tax, it, up to a $10 million gain. So you can save $2.38 million on a $10 million gain, or we can actually multiply that $10 million to get a little bit higher if we do certain planning in advance. So you could save significant tax savings. And this, the qualified some of this stock usually will apply to founders of companies or to very early employees because you got to meet specific requirements to have it be qualified small business stock. You have to acquire the stock directly from the company. So you can't buy it third party from someone else or something like that. You got to get it from the company. And But it can be via options. It could be via RSUs. It could be just straight founder shares, whatever. Or you could be an outside investor and you invested in the company and got shares for your investment. All those qualify, but it has to be directly from the company. There's certain restrictions around redemption so that you, the company can't redeem stock and then issue new stock and have it qualify. They can't like skirt the rules like that. So there's certain rules around that. And one of the key things is it has to be a qualified small business. So you have to have acquired the stock when the company has less than $50 million in assets. That's a pretty big that, number. That is a big number. But if, but if some of these startups here, if they're raising big like Series A rounds and that kind of stuff, they can go over the $50 million pretty early. So you want to be like pre-Series A or pre-Series B if you're in like a tech company or, you know, a founder. The company's worth nothing when you get the shares. So that's easy, you know, or very early employee, something like that where you can get the shares below the $50 million a friends and family round as an angel mm -hmm. investor or something, something like that where you can qualify. And then it has to be an actual qualified small business, which basically means that certain businesses are excluded, like a service firms like accountants and lawyers and, you know, those folks or, you know, banking, There's some other types of companies that do not qualify. It has to be a C corporation. So it has to be C corporation shares. It can't be an S corporation, can't be an LLC or something like that. Although you can flip to a C corporation later and have it qualify. That's a whole Another topic. An another planning opportunity. Yeah. It's had to be a C corporation. And then the big one for on the employee side is you have to hold it for five years before you sell. So you have to have a five-year holding period. And that five-year holding period is extremely black or white and crucial. I had a client come in one time, a new client, and he had sold his company and made like 10 million bucks or 12 or something like that. And he was like four years and 10 months. And oh, like, no. Like, if you had met me and talked to me beforehand, I would have had you negotiate a sale date out like two months more. And we could have saved you a couple million dollars. Oh man, that that is significant. Yeah, so you you got to consult with a professional who's aware of the qualified small business stock opportunity here, but it can be really big. So you can get it gain up to ten million. You can exclude, or there's a multiple of your basis in the stock, which usually doesn't apply because you're you getting the stock for almost nothing. You're a founder or something like that. So usually it's a ten million dollars gain that you can exclude. Mm -hmm. That's also per eligible taxpayer too. A married couple is considered one taxpayer, so you can't split between your spouse or something. But what you can about do your kid? you can do gifting to your kids. Usually, we do it through some sort of like irrevocable trust or something. And if you do it like that, the trust gets its own ten million dollar exemption, as well as the parent. There's gift tax consequences to gifting something with value irrevocably to your child. So you have a gift tax thing to deal with. But if you do it early again, you may be able to minimize the gift tax hit as well. And you can then multiply that $10 million by different taxpayers. You can have like more than one trust set up, right? And then you can get 10 million, 10 million, 10. If you have a big gain, you can really have a big opportunity for the planning here. One other thing I'll mention on the QSBS, because it's a whole other topic probably for this, but there's also a rollover provision available where if you don't meet the five years on a QSBS, if you've held it for at least six months, which is a much shorter time frame, that is and shorter. you have a sale, mm -hmm. you have 60 days to roll that gain to a new QSBS company. 
So if you're a serial entrepreneur, if you're forming a company and selling it pretty quickly, like in a year or two or three time frame, which definitely happens and you right. people make money, which is like, you know, parties like, oh, well, boohoo, you made a ton of money <laughs> in a couple of years, <laughs> you know, but you can roll some of that gang into the next company and at least defer tax on that. Oh, part. interesting. You're not like going to have basis on the new stocks. You're going to have to pay the tax eventually, but at least you can roll it in and defer it. So that's not a bad thing as an alternative if you don't meet the five years. It's like a 1031 exchange for businesses. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. And there's a couple of clients I'm working with now where actually they have a mergers of co- the company's been acquired and they're we're trying to negotiate where they can get stock instead of cash on the merger because the the holding period will tack on to the new stock mm. and you may be able to meet the five year by extending it by getting stock instead of getting cash and then waiting. So if you get acquired by a big public company, the new shares you get aren't QSBS shares. So you're capped at the value when you sold. But if you only had like two or three years of time frame and then you merge and got stock, if you can get the new public company shares, hold those for a couple of years, then sell, you can get the QSBS treatment up to your original sales price, you know, date of the deal gain on those shares. So it's a way to maybe potentially qualify. And that's a deal negotiation point. Again, you want to make sure it's all structured properly. It's very specific things you got to do, but it's definitely a possibility of planning opportunity again. Yeah. So this, this sounds like a huge planning opportunity. I've never heard of zero tax. I didn't even know that was possible but it sounds like you really need to work with a professional that understands the rules around these qualified small business stock absolutely and you know one of my best success stories was a client i took over that the prior cpa didn't know about the qsbs rules and this is one where you can amend and go back and change to get the right treatment so you don't need to do it on the original return correctly although you certainly don't want to pay the tax but we amended and we got you know almost half a million dollars back so that was a pretty a half a million dollars yep I hope he bought you a nice bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> and if you and if you uh, wait like three years and you're past the statute, you can't get your money back. You can't get a refund, even if it was the wrong treatment. Oh. So, you know, you got to use a CPA. If you have a, a big transaction, a big game, we talk about the right size thing all the time. Talked about in the last podcast. Talk about it on a lot of our podcasts on our website. You got to find a right size CPA firm to meet your needs. If you're in the seven figure territory. You may have outgrown your sole proprietor CPA or a small or an EA or some sort of like just certified tax preparer. You want to go to a, a CPA that specializes in equity compensation. Our firm does a lot of this because then you don't want to miss out on some opportunity, opportunities. These are big gains. And you definitely don't want to do the return yourself. I see TurboTax returns, too, with big gains. And I'm like, you need to just pay someone, you know. Uh- I am. I'm a <laughs> it doesn't re- even need to be me. It just makes me mad if someone doesn't even want to pay and they, they're giving up money to the government, you know. It can be any firm, but don't don't give the government more money. Come on. Yeah. You know, we we talk about bringing value to our clients all the time. And you are just presented a quantified five hundred thousand dollar refund for a mistake that a previous preparer had made. So, I mean, that's true value. Right. And so QSBS can be a big deal. It doesn't apply for California purposes. So there's, you know, an issue there. But I'm oh, actually, of course, yeah. California doesn't yeah. conform. They don't conform to a lot of things. You pay California tax, but still, you you come out pretty good. But if, again, if you plan ahead on the residency planning and you sell outside <laughs> Hello, of California, Montana, <laughs> you, you may pay lower tax or no tax on the state side too. You could be a totally tax-free game, which would just be incredible, right? And actually, there's other states that have analogous types of provisions. We had a client that came to us that's uh, lives in Virginia, and he had a tech company. They have a special Virginia exclusion up to a certain amount. We got him a $30,000 refund on his Virginia amended return because they didn't claim an exclusion on a sale of a stock. It didn't meet the QSBS rules for federal yet, but it met the special Virginia rules. So oh. 
you know, each you need, state is different. Each state's different, and they have special little programs to incentivize, like you know, technology companies or businesses to come to their state. And these little loopholes, or not loopholes, these little rules that are in there, you got to have a CPA that's willing to research and be aware of them, or you know, that kind of stuff. So hire someone, please. Especially we our accountants, you should hire, but you know, you could hire hire anyone that'll help you out. Yo, is there anything else that you wanted to to cover? Two real quick things, so we can kind of wrap it up here. You hear a lot about 83B elections having to be made when you get stock. Those apply when you're granted stock that has a substantial risk of forfeiture. Usually that's like a vesting requirement, like you're required to stay with the company to get the stock. Mm-hmm. So most of the time, and it's not for the, like RAC is a big company, it's more like early stage founders, shares and that kind of stuff. You want to execute an 83B election within 30 days of being granted the stock. It's very important. I mean, most of the attorneys out there that are drafting these incorporation documents and stuff for these founders and that kind of thing, they're pretty good about making sure that the taxpayer does the 83B election. But you just uh-huh. want to make sure you're doing that to get that done in place. Because if you don't, you can have a really adverse tax consequence in the future. So that's the 83B election. And the 1244 loss is one thing I wanted to cover. That's kind of like the qualified small business stock thing, but it's for losses. So if the company doesn't work out and you're part of the first million dollars in funding for the company on the equity side and you have a loss on your equity, yeah. you can claim it to $100,000 ordinary loss on the stock, and then the rest is going to be a capital loss. Capital losses are limited to capital gains, or if you have an excess capital loss, you can only take $3,000 a year against your other ordinary income. So that would take a long time. <clears throat> so to work sometimes out. it takes a long time to recoup those capital losses, but the 1244 loss lets you take an ordinary loss up to hundred grand. So that can be a big ordinary deduction and make a big difference on tax savings. If you're an angel investor... If you're doing like friends and family stuff and the company doesn't work out or whatever, you want to get documentation to see if it meets the requirements to be a 1244 loss. And then you want to make sure you're taking that loss so you get the max benefit there. So I just wanted to point that one out, too. You know, a lot of startups don't work out, actually, obviously. So, you know, when it doesn't, there's some silver lining, at least on your loss on taxes, where you can claim some tax benefit. You want to make sure you're claiming the right tax benefit. <laughs> company didn't work out. But guess what? We're going to save you some money on taxes. <laughs> yeah. You bought a, you know, 40 grand in tax savings for 100 grand, but still. (laughs) But yeah, I think that's it. I don't have anything else. I mean, we have a lot more we could cover, and I think we should dive into some of these topics in future podcasts in more detail. Maybe the the QSBS one. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunity around doing an LLC first and some of that kind of stuff. But, you know, I want to give a high level overview today for our listeners. And, you know, they should obviously come contact us if they have specific question. Yeah, we'll, we'll call that make $10 million and pay zero tax. This is go. how you do it. That's right. Great. Well, I learned a lot today. Thank you so much, Matt. That's all for today's episode of the Debit This, Credit That podcast. As always, if you have any questions, you can contact your Wheeler Accountants Preparer or submit a question online at our website in the Ask Wheeler section at the bottom of the page. Please remember to follow us on social media for regular updates at Wheeler CPAs and on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening as we help you solve for accounting.